Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. All right, so Acts 17, we are deep into our study on the book of Acts, and we have been learning more and more about God's mission. We're seeing that it's not a human mission that the book of Acts is detailing, but it is the Holy Trinity. It's God on mission, and it's Jesus' ongoing ministry through his church, through his people. And we could actually call it, rather than the Acts of the Apostles, we could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church. So it's been pretty awesome to see from the beginning, chapter one, where they're replacing Judas, and then Jesus promises that the kingdom of God is going to expand through them, through spirit-empowered witnessing to the gospel. And along the way, we're seeing that, hey, this is our, this is our story, as Chris was mentioning this morning. These are family roots here. So the book of Acts is rich stuff. Last, the week before last, so we had the young adults last week. That was fun, wasn't it? Young adults, glad that you're here and shared some, our interns. The last time we looked at Acts, it was chapter 16, the end of that chapter, and we looked at Philippi, the church at Philippi, and we saw the deliverance of a fortune teller, young girl, salvation of a jailer, and his family, and then we saw the church growing. And I've been reminding us that each of these cities, these are places that have never encountered the message of Jesus. The gospel is going into this soil for the first time, and what ends up happening is Paul goes with a team, shares the gospel, people are saved, they're converted, but they make disciples, and they appoint elders, and then they go back and visit And there is a local church planted in these key cities. And then Paul later writes letters to them, the people that he loves and knows in that city. And he mentions many of them by name. These were house churches. So today what we're going to see is Paul and Silas and Timothy, Luke, visiting a couple of other cities. And we can put the map up here real quick to see... So this red arrow that started at Antioch is winding its way up northward, and you can see the purple square there. We've got Thessalonica and Berea. That's where they're going to be today. And what is going to happen is they're going to be accused of turning the world upside down. Isn't that a great accusation? Hey, you guys are so filled with the Holy Spirit And the word is so powerful, you are turning the world upside down. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to see them turning the world upside down in these two cities. And we're going to see along the way, again, the centrality of the word of God. The word, scripture, the scripture shows up over and over again in this passage. So we're going to read verses 1 through 9 and look at this apostolic team and their work in Thessalonica, and then we'll read the rest of the passage where they're in Berea. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do look to you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us the spirit of truth, 
we ask you to open up your word to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some of the ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, these people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken Baal from Jason and the others, they let them go. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So after their time in Philippi, we're seeing here, Paul and Silas and team are now moving through these cities. And they're each separated by about 30 miles. And they make their way to Thessalonica. Why don't we say that together? Thessalonica. Some big words here. And along the way, they're traveling. I find it interesting. It kind of brings the passage to life if we realize some of the details. They're traveling on a famous road. And I've got a picture up here of that famous road. Thank you to our slide people who help us out here. So if you look on the upper right, kind of where the compass is there, you see this road ran all the way across Asia Minor. You see that red line? And so Paul and team are walking along this road. It was called the Via Ignatia. And it was the road of the nations. And it ran about 700 miles. And it was cobblestone covered with sand and took many, many years to, to construct. And it, so from the Bosphorus on the west to the Adriatic Sea, it is a huge, helpful roadway. And so Paul was making his way along that and he came to Thessalonica, a key city in Macedonia. Population at the time was upwards to 200,000 people. So it was a major port city where they were, a key commercial center, a headquarters for the Roman governor. That's gonna become important in just a minute because they were fiercely loyal to Rome. And it was very cosmopolitan. So they had people from all over the, the world, different nations there, including Jews. And if we look at the, the text there, it says that they went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he reasoned. The word actually means dialogued. So Paul went in and began to dialogue and strike up conversation and look at the scriptures together. And he did this for three Sabbath days. 
And he was trying to prove to them from the scriptures, from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that Jesus fulfilled all the promises of the prophets and that he had to suffer and rise from the dead. Friends, this is the gospel. And so we've seen it over and over again that through Paul and through Peter and the others that the Old Testament preaches the gospel of the Messiah, that Christ would come and suffer and die and be raised again and raised to the right hand of the Father. So as this is happening, the text says again that they had success. Some people responded positively, but then we find after verse 4, a large group of Jews who were jealous. And I would note again here, the Bible is not anti-Semitic, right? So sometimes people take passages like this and lift them out, and that, that's not what's going on. It's just people who are resisting the news about Jesus, and they're not seeing what is in their own scriptures. And so Luke is pointing that out. He's saying there are some Jews who are reading the scriptures and understanding the promises of the Messiah, the anointed one, and then there are others who are resistant, like Paul was, if we remember that. And so they stir up a mob, don't they? They stir up a mob, and they get some bad characters together from the marketplace, and they start a riot in the city at verse 5. This is the only mention we have of this nice guy named Jason, who's obviously let them come and stay in his home. And so they seize Jason and bring him before the city officials, and they basically make him pay to ensure that his guests will stop stirring the city up. So Jason pays after being forced by the mob, and then look at verse 6. I just love this phrase. How about you? Their accusation is these folks have been turning the world upside down. We've been hearing about it, and now they've come to our town, and they're turning our town upside down. What exactly does that mean? Look at verse 7. Luke explains. Jason's entertained them as guests, and they're saying that there is another king named Jesus. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus himself was accused of being another king and for defying the emperor's decrees. Luke wants us to know, though, that they're innocent, right? They are innocent. They're turning the world upside down, but it's actually turning the world right side up. The world is upside down, and so they're pointing out through the truth of the gospel where true peace comes from. But friends, these are serious charges, and we keep seeing it over and over again in the book of Acts that the gospel challenges some political structures, right? They expected the people to give devotion, absolute devotion, worship to the Roman emperor, and the gospel disrupts that. So really, they're being accused of a couple things. One is disrupting civil peace, and a second that's more severe is sedition, being rebellious against the authorities. But friends, what were they doing? Were they being seditious? No, they were simply preaching salvation through the name of Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. So Luke is showing us their innocence, just as he did in his gospel, Christ's innocence. So as I looked at this, I was thinking, 
Lord, why does this keep coming up? Why is it that the church is bumping up against political structures over and over again? And I think the Lord allowed this to be in the book of Acts so that we could learn how we're supposed to relate to various political systems and structures. And I have mentioned, even in the last couple of weeks, how exhausted I can be by this very thing. What is the church supposed to do in the political culture that we're in? But friends, we have to get the message from the word of God. If it keeps cropping up, there's no better place to just sit and listen and let our minds be cleared and not hear the messaging from the media, but to hear the message loud and clear, crystal clear through the word of God. Amen? So I wanted to just ponder for a moment here. If the early church is encountering and being falsely accused for stirring up dissent and being seditious for preaching the gospel, what can we glean from a passage like this? And I just want to suggest a few things. And the first, we say it regularly, is kingdom allegiance. So here at All Saints, we do care about politics, and I'll get to that in a minute, but we, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, we do have another king, and his kingdom is not of this world. Didn't Jesus say that in John 18? So the truth is, if someone says, hey, are you saying that you have another master, another president? You can actually say, yeah, I do. I actually do. And his kingdom is not of this world. It's true righteousness, true justice. And he is the one and only Lord that I serve. Ephesians 4, 5 says there's one Lord, right? One Lord. And so we know that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And he even said in Matthew 6, 33, what did he say to seek first? Seek first the kingdom of God. So that's at the top of the list. It's the foundation. It drives everything that we do, the kingdom of God. Amen? So we have kingdom allegiance, and then the other thing that we can glean from this passage and from other places in Acts where we see the kingdom and the gospel bumping up against political systems is that we are called to live and proclaim the scriptures, right? And this is how, frankly, we determine our allegiance to the king. It's the kingdom charter or the constitution that's given to us from Jesus, the Bible, shows us God and his ways. And so we are doing our best to line up our lives and the lives of those around us to be faithful followers of Jesus, who is our king. Amen? And we want, as James says in chapter 1, to be hearers and doers of the word. So we should strive with grace and with all our might to be faithful. Lord, help us know the word, help us speak it, but help us do it. Help us be obedient. That is our life mission, to make disciples. A third thing here is be responsible citizens. And so it's not that we proclaim the kingdom and that we bail out or that we retreat from society or culture or we say, you know what? I'm not paying taxes. I, I'm not going to be a responsible citizen. No, the scriptures are clear on that. Paul, Peter, others tell us. He says in Romans 13, 1 through 7, that we're to 
pay our taxes, to obey the authorities over us, to trust that God is in control ultimately. And then this one stings. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. Anybody read that we have to pray for our leaders and rulers? I haven't done a very good job of that. So I have felt in recent months when I want to complain and recognize how atrocious some of our political leaders are, the Lord is like, are you praying for them? And I'm like, no, sir, I'm not. And so the Lord says, I want you to start praying for them. And I'm like, can you help me? Because I certainly would want to call down a little bit of fire or whatever it is, to be honest. So part of being a responsible citizen is to obey the authorities, to be law-abiding citizens, unless they're saying to do things that break God's law, eventually. Pray for our leaders to be obedient, good, and peaceable. Paul says that in Titus 3, 1 to 2. And then I would add to that mix, even if you're jaded with everything going on, do your best to research and vote for someone who most closely aligns with biblical values. Amen? Vote your Christian conscience, right? And then lastly, and this is where I want to grow, and I invite us to grow, and that is to confront evil and injustice. And we saw Paul do that back in chapter 16, didn't we? We saw him drive a demon out of this girl who was a slave, and he was setting her free spiritually. We don't know how the story played out. But for Paul, he was bringing the justice of the kingdom of God to that situation. King Jesus was stepping in and saying, I'm going to set this young lady free and give her a new life. And so likewise, we are sent and empowered by God to be like Christ in the world. It's pretty astonishing. If you read John 20, at verse 21, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so church, we are sent in that same authority to be the body of Christ. We're anointed with the same Holy Spirit. Luke 4, a popular passage around here, 18 and 19, Jesus lays out why he was anointed by the Father. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace or favor. This is what we're called to do. Amen? Micah 6.8, another passage that lays it out clearly for the people of God for all time were to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And so this is part of being the body of Christ, the people of God, even in a political context like the one that we're in, where everyone is a little bit disturbed. Isn't that right? So as I was thinking of this, I already shared a little bit. I've been doing a little bit of repentance. And so I want to invite you into some repentance with me, even now. I want you to think about some of the political stances that you've had that might grieve God's heart. I've already said I've got some. Do you? Do you have some political views and stances that might grieve the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you are or have been too de devoted to the Democrats, 
you need to repent. Maybe you've been overly devoted to the Republican Party. You need to repent. Maybe you've had some bitterness, like I have, towards some of these political leaders, or lots of them. Repentance is the way out. Maybe we have been lacking a biblical justice model versus a social justice model. I can't find the word social justice in the Bible. I do find biblical justice and God's justice and the prophetic justice that he calls for that covers all of the social justice issues but does a much better job. So maybe you need to repent for being too devoted to a social justice cause and you need to get in the book and learn about biblical justice. Maybe you've ignored certain things like the tragedy of abortion and you've just thought that's too political. I don't wanna touch that thing with a 10-foot pole, that issue. I would invite you to repent because the death of tens of millions of innocent little babies is, I wanna be on the right side of history, do you? And so I want to let that touch my heart and let God break my heart over that issue. And again, we can get into the nuances. Are there times where, yeah, you, know the, you know the deal. But I'm just saying overall, you know, 65, 70 million abortions, we're not talking about some of the political things that we're looking at. We're talking about convenience, convenient killing. Um, I've been repenting over not caring enough about the poor and the widow and the orphan. And so I want to invite us as a church to repent and get God's heart for the poor and the widow and the orphan. Amen? So why don't you just take a moment here to repent? Maybe God's speaking to you right now, or maybe he's been speaking to you this week or this month. And I would encourage you to do some business and repent, turn from whatever that is and turn to receive his mercy and then receive his kingdom perspective. Let's just take a moment. we do receive your mercy. Repentance is a wonderful word, isn't it? So it's to turn from whatever we're mired in or focused on and to turn to God, to turn to the Father and receive his mercy. The rest of the passage goes on to focus on what's happening in Berea. Let's look at this and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a minute. But in Berea, at verse 10, that very night... The believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more receptive. 
than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those who conducted or led Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. So he's been in Thessalonica, now they're in Berea. The first part shows really how they're proclaiming the word, and now it seems to show how the message is received. So they're moving about 45 minutes southwest of Thessalonica. They go to the synagogue again, and this is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of the New Testament. Wouldn't you agree? They are receiving the word or the message or the gospel with great eagerness, and then what are they doing? Verse 11, they're examining the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. This is a big wow. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. And they are examining what he's saying. Does that register with you? I mean, the dude probably had the Hebrew Bible memorized because he was a Pharisee. I mean, he knew the word inside and out, and yet these Bereans were hearing him speak and searching the scriptures to make sure that what he was saying, in fact, lined up with the plumb line of scripture. Let that sink in for a moment. So my prayer is that this model would take root in our church. And so wherever you are, whatever you're reading, whatever you're hearing, you have the plumb line of scripture open, even with me, more so with me. I love it when people come and challenge and say, no, wait, what you said or email, I I love it. I want you to examine and weigh every word that I say or you say one another, and we are examining the scriptures like the Bereans. It's a pretty good model, isn't it? And I think what this does, along with highlighting a model that Luke is pointing out here, receiving the word with eagerness and then examining the Bible every single day, it also shows how clear scripture is, right? One person said this I, read that this, I read this this week and thought it was beautiful. The idea that the Bible can be understood rightly, not only by biblical scholars, but also by ordinary Christians who read it eagerly and diligently is being shown in this passage with conscience, conscious dependence on God for help. So the scriptures don't have to be understood by someone who can read Hebrew and Greek. It's for the whole church, right? We're all priests, and we can all read and understand the scriptures just like these Berean folks here. The passage ends with them leaving, sending Paul off to Athens, and so we'll pick up that in a couple of weeks, and he has to leave and get out of town because this group of hooligans is coming again to stir the town up, and Paul will land in Athens, and we'll see a fascinating passage week after next. We'll look at what Paul's doing there as he connects with this city that's full of idols. 